Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is and this is Thursday, December 1st, 2016. We take a two-week break after this, and then we're back on the air December 15th. Then we're off for the winter holidays and come back January 5th. The general rule, when you speak the truth in a world of lies, is that first they laugh at you, and then they get mad at you because some people are starting to believe it. Then... They fight you with everything they have, and finally they're forced to accept it. We are heavily into phase three as we see larger law firms come to confront lawyers like me and Charles Marshall, my co-host tonight. And they're coming out of the shadows to fight us and the reason is we've brought the battle to their doorstep. We've won some, uh, won some important victories, and uh, of course we've had our share of losses that ended up on appeal and so forth. But I would say that the out of the total number of really contested cases that the percentage is climbing up close to 50% where the homeowner either gets a judgment in their favor or a modification that they can live with, albeit that's a modification that could cause title problems later on, but I think that will probably be taken care of by a legislative reset, which has happened in Florida and other states. I had an interesting ad- admission come up recently for one of my clients when after a modification was complete, one of the major servicers admitted what I have been saying for years. Despite all appearances to the contrary, nearly all foreclosures come from one source, LPS Black Knight in Jacksonville. The servicer admitted in writing in a letter that the system of records is kept by LPS. You might remember them, right? These are the people who published a menu of services with prices for the fabrication and forgery of documents. These are the people whose affiliate, DocX, had Lorraine Brown admit 
that she alone was responsible for the fabrication and forgeries and who actually went to jail, the only one, with, I'm sure, sufficient compensation, I'm guessing, to have taken the fall for everybody else. You can imagine just how large that compensation was. Just to reiterate my opinion, which is based upon deep background sources that I have 100% confidence in, the servicers keep records of payments in which they are involved, but ultimately it is LPS that maintains the records, not the servicers, and LPS that recreates those records and supplies the information that lawyers tell them is required to get the foreclosure. As circumstances change and they start losing a lot of cases again, then they start changing the reports and other information that is supposedly maintained on their system, but I would say that it is more created than maintained. And once again, we have a question that is asked of me about once every two years, and we're going to actually get into it tonight. We have a pro se litigant who has been battling the banks in Arkansas and who has been thinking out of the box. John Dunn has asked a question that will send shutters down the spine of too-big-to-fail bankers. He's with us here tonight. His question is, what if we sued the investors, the owners of those worthless certificates that were issued by non-existent trusts? The question is a bombshell and has been asked a few times before. As the real parties in interest whose money was actually used to fund every deal, every alleged loan, every alleged acquisition of a debt that had not already been sold to multiple other parties, why should they be safe from the litigation while the borrowers or the homeowners take the hit? Tonight we continue with attorney Charles Marshall, who joins me as co-host of the show. Great to be here People. again, Neil. And this will give me an opportunity to talk about the fiduciary duty that these institutional money managers have when they manage the portfolios for these investors you're talking about. Yeah, I think that there's a, a lot of material there uh, that uh, we can cover tonight. I uh, want to cover a couple of other things first here. People are starting to make inquiries uh, about the seminar on, on objections. We're still working on it. Uh, in every case where I have won the day and where others have won the day, it appears to me that timely objections during testimony and cross-examination were the reasons why judges stepped back from, our normal, from their normal assumptions and ruled for the homeowner. And we are inching closer technologically to delivering online seminars, including trial objections won't be released until I'm personally satisfied with the format and with the content. Um, lest I ignore the recent spate of new inquiries about rescission, I will repeat what I said last week. There is actually no such thing as a lawsuit to enforce TILA rescission. 
you can file a lawsuit to enforce the duties of the so-called lender, which is return of the money, return of the canceled note, and cancel the uh, uh, encumbrance. But no lawsuit is required to make the rescission effective. The TILA rescission is effective all by itself when mailed, and that's true by operation of law. That's not my opinion. It's the wording of the statute, 15 U.S.C. 1635. It's also the words of the Supreme Court of the United States unanimously in Jessenowski versus Countrywide, penned by Justice Scalia. This is not a <clears throat> this is not a theory. It is a fact, and it is also a fact that trial judges are ignoring it and ruling as though the rescission did not exist without vacating the rescission, which I think is a fundamental error, and I am confident that eventually the Supreme Court of the United States will again slap the hands of the judges in the trial courts below. And judging from the threatening communications that I've received from attorneys for the banks, it seems that recording the rescission might be a thorn in the side of the banks because it forces them to file an action to get rid of it. And that opens the door to questioning their standing and gives them angina on what to plead. Recording the rescission may be the best way, in my opinion, to pull the linchpin. By putting that in the county records, the issue of title becomes a real problem for the banks. Even if they try to ignore it or file motions in court as though they were the creditor, which they can no longer, in my opinion, allege or prove since the note and mortgage, this is not opinion, became void on the day the TILA rescission was mailed. That's what the statute says, and that's what the Supreme Court says, and you can't go any higher than the Supreme Court or Congress. By the way, by, by the time they, they sue to vacate the rescission, they're long past the 20-day window that Congress gave them to, as I put it last week, poop or get off the pot. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield firm in office with offices. Uh, what did I do? Okay. Um, and this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you for those of you who have contributed, and for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the Donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345, which is the main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Charles Marshall, our co-host, is an attorney with offices in San Diego. He operates throughout California, practices in all federal California districts, and has been the lead attorney in both trial actions and appeals uh, pending uh, before the Ninth Circuit and the 
uh, California State Appellate Districts. You can be reached at 619-807-2628. Welcome back, Charles Marshall. Yes, Neil, great to be on again. And again, it is uh, it is really promising to be talking about this relatively undeveloped area of investor liability, particularly that of the fund managers who put together these investments to go into these, you know, what you rightly have essentially described as phantom pools via these pooling and servicing agreements. Yeah, and that's what we're going to do because we're going to turn first to our our, our first guest, here, who is a pro se litigant, John Dunn, from the great state of Arkansas. Welcome, John. How long have you been battling the banks there in Arkansas? Pretty close to about eight years now. And what's happened during those eight years? A brief version. Uh-huh. Well, there was a original lawsuit. Then there was a bankruptcy. The bankruptcy was filed, uh, of course, to rearrange my debt, but it also kept the judge's uh, judge from signing his order, which frustrated Wilson and Associates for a couple of years. And um, uh, after all of that, everything sat for a while. Then they started up again, uh, coming against me. And um, we filed a, a second lawsuit, which the second lawsuit is still ongoing. In that lawsuit, we deposed um, a individual that worked for American Mortgage Associates, uh, Bradley Hoffman. And uh, we found out in that deposition that he did not sign the allonge, that his signature was forged by some other person. And that suit is still ongoing. Then we filed a federal lawsuit, which recently uh, the judge ruled against us. And it's a one-paragraph little issue. If I can, I'll read it. It says, defendant's motion to dismiss is granted because TILA provides no relief for plaintiffs simply because defendant failed to respond to the notice of rescission. Indeed, plaintiffs had no right to rescind at the time they delivered the April 2009 rescission notice, and therefore nothing in the statute required defendant to respond. And so right now that's why I emailed you this afternoon and discussed why we could not go ahead and go after the beneficiary certificate holders, um, even though they're the investors, are they not the creditor? That is a good summary, John. And I would say that 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 order from the judge is, as I have said to some judges, an example of a judge trying the case in his head instead of in court. He's making assumptions of, of fact that have not been established, proven, or even offered because you haven't even gotten to that point. So you 
you, you raised the, the very good question of why are we not suing the holders of the certificates, the investors, whose money, after all, is at the root of all of this. Now, it's not trust money in 99% of all cases. It's not trust money because the trust never got the money from the purchase of those certificates. So the investors would appear to be individually involved. And when I say individually, I don't mean as an individual live person, but a legal person, which would be um, a stable managed fund, et cetera. And you have fund managers, and that's what Charles Marshall wants to talk about with fiduciary responsibility. But let me first lay out my immediate answer to that, and I think I'm getting closer to wanting to get involved in a case that attempted to pierce through the, what is, in, in essence, a non-existent trust. The investors would appear to be the real parties in interest. In fact, the only real parties in interest in these deals are investors, which uh, are... As I say, they are managed funds uh, for the most part. There are very few individuals that are invested in these things. And so you've got the investors on the one hand, and you've got the homeowners on the other. And the way it was set up is that neither the investor nor the borrower knew what was going on in between and didn't know of the existence of each other. In reality, if you follow the money trail and apply what is established doctrine in tax court and other situations, that is the single transaction doctrine or the step transaction doctrine, the test is, would this deal have ever happened but for what the investors did or but for what the homeowner did? And the answer is no. The investors would have had nothing to think they, that they were investing in if the homeowners were refusing to sign those papers that were fabricated and fraudulently representing a payee as a lender when in fact it was not the lender. And the investors would never, obviously, would never have invested any money had they known that they were actually originating loans and at that originating bad ones. So the two real parties in interest here have got to be only the investors and the homeowners. And the ultimate solution here is somehow to bring those parties together, but the fund managers have a vested interest, personal interest, in not admitting the fact that these assets are worthless. And they're getting bonuses and paid salaries and so forth as if the asset values in the fund are at one level when in fact they're another. And you'll see there's already been repeated instances where uh, pension benefits have declined and so forth. You're going to see a lot more of that as time goes on. So if the money never went into any trust, 
then, and it was commingled with all kinds of investors who thought they were dealing with hundreds of trusts, then the trust really doesn't exist because it doesn't have what we call in the law a race, R-E-S. That's Latin for the thing. There's nothing in it. If there's nothing in it, then there's no action the trust can take because it doesn't have anything. It doesn't have a bank account. It doesn't have any assets or liabilities or income or expenses. It doesn't even have a, a trust officer of the tr so-called trustee that's in charge because the trustee has nothing to do. So if the trust never received the proceeds of sale of the so-called mortgage-backed securities issued by the trust, nor were they ever intended uh, to receive those proceeds, uh, unbeknownst to the investors, then it seems possible that an action could be brought that pierces through the, this veil, this particular veil, and goes directly after the investors. The key point here, obviously, is at what point can you identify those investors and what means can you use to do so? You can identify them by description in a lawsuit, but um, it certainly will be better if we get to the point where we can actually identify the actual uh, uh, owners of what they think are certificates from a viable trust. Or maybe they know that it's not a viable trust and they know that the assets are worthless. The promotional material on derivatives and securitization of residential loans repeatedly referred to bankruptcy, remote vehicles, and other language basically saying that the investors don't have to worry about liability for lending violations or servicing violations or wrongful foreclosure because they have the protection of the trust layered on top of everything. But my answer to that is if there is no trust, then they don't have that protection and there should be a way procedurally and substantively to go after those investors. Charles, what's your take on this? I think the way to get to the investors is through the fund managers because the fund managers in the vast majority of these scenarios, it doesn't matter what state they're operating in, by the way, for purposes of this analysis, the vast majority of those fund managers have due diligence requirements where they should not have been offering these types of investment vehicles unless they made all kinds of multiple disclosures which had to do with not just due diligence but appropriateness of the investment for the particular investors who ultimately went into these schemes. And I think if one were to peel the layers back in these transactions, you would find that in a you know, significant number of cases, uh, potentially a very large number of cases, there was not the proper documentation presented to the investors from the fund managers. 
that there was there were very misleading representations made between misleading representations and inadequate representations. I would think there would be a lot of uh, potential litigation against the fund managers. And what's interesting about this, just kind of from a legal angle point of view, is that on the one hand, you could bring in particularly the larger investors uh, on the defense end, you know, in other words, against against them uh, in the same way that, again, whether they were whether they were joined as as counter defendants in a situation like in Florida where the servicer is suing, and then there could be a countersuit that included the investors. There could also be a countersuit that included the fund managers as well. And then if you're doing this in California or, or another non judicial foreclosure state, you know, John's situation in Tennessee, for instance. Are the you way you could yeah, the way you could handle that would be to join both of them as defendants, and there's one other angle. You could potentially, in some cases, I think, even align with some investors to go after the fund managers. So all these ways would allow discovery and would allow peeling back the layers in the uh, of the proverbial onion to, to get a good, good result for the borrower. That would be the bottom line. John, if, if you had the opportunity to meet with one or more of the fund managers who had placed the pension fund assets into these mortgage-backed securities and you were having a heart-to-heart talk with them, what would you want them to hear? I think the first question that I would ask them is, do they even know any of this is going on? Are they aware of the litigation that the trust is in? And I and I think the answer to that is they probably have no clue whatsoever. And what's interesting about that is that very often when you look at the exact wording of who's pursuing the foreclosure, it often says uh, XYZ as trustee for the certificate holders of the XYZ trust, which creates an ambiguity as to whether or not the trustee is an agent of the certificate holders or is truly acting as a trustee for the trust, which doesn't have anything. And, Neil, if there's there's no money in the trust, then what's the purpose of the trustee? There isn't any, nor is there any authority for the uh, so-called servicer to act as servicer because it derives its authority from the trust, which doesn't legally exist without having any trust property committed to it. So the, the 
uh, your question to the fund manager is really key because if they can honestly say, this is my opinion, if they can honestly say, I didn't know and I had no way of knowing that they were they were not putting my money into into the trust and that the trustee was not performing any duties and that they were using my money to originate loans, not acquire ones that were already in existence and where somebody went at risk to put their own money to make the initial loan. Um, if they can honestly say they didn't know, then I'd be inclined to say that the investors or the who are also, you know, identified as the owners of certificates probably can't be sued, uh, at least not by um, a, a homeowner. Uh, they may be su suable, as uh, Charles has pointed out, uh, by the beneficiaries of the pension fund or whatever managed fund uh, is there. Uh, but if they can really say they they didn't know, I still think there's a case for the pensioners to sue them because they can say, well, you should have known. I mean, the information was there, and you're a sophisticated securities analyst and manager. You had, you know, everything available to determine whether or not this was a proper investment, and you didn't. Uh, but I don't believe they didn't know, and I definitely don't believe that they couldn't have known. Now, if that's the case, that they knew, let's start with that one, then it would be my opinion that they were a, central to a scheme in which they set in motion all of these convoluted sham conduits ultimately to defraud the... Uh, uh, homeowners in connection with the sale of loan products. How did they defraud the homeowners? It's very simple. The home, and this is what's set forth in the Truth in Lending Act, notwithstanding what your judge said. They, it's, it's of critical importance that the homeowner knows who he's doing business with. Why? Because if he has some problem with the loan, he's got to know who's accountable. And if the investors were willing, knowing participants in this, then that means, and they were the source of the money, that means that everybody in between is nothing and the liability falls on them. I don't think you can pierce through that without first showing that the trust has nothing, but I don't think that would be terribly difficult once you got past a motion to dismiss on this. So if they did know, 
I would say that a homeowner has standing to sue them. If they should have known, then we're dealing with negligence, proximate cause, and things like that. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not as certain as I am of the previous answer where they did know. Uh, it would depend upon how gross their negligence was, I think. <laughs> I would Charles, say, you know, right. I mean, part of what would weigh in at that point is the fiduciary duty aspect. And so many uh, of the institutional investors who got involved in these Boolean servicing agreements, they were coming out of, particularly in California, I mean, they were coming out of even uh, teacher retirement funds and other retirement funds related to public employment in California. And I think this was true in various places throughout the country. And if you look at the implications of that, under state law in all these states where those types of uh, investment uh, vehicles are, are taking place, there's a pretty high standard held to the fund managers of those types of public funds. And I think the should-have-known aspect that you've been discussing, that's that's a powerful uh litigation tool, litigation vehicle, uh, litigation lever. And it's absolutely true that to the extent that one can show litigating that a given defendant did know, that will, of course, be a more powerful uh, point of leverage. However, I think on the on the front of should have known, particularly where you had public employment or large private pension funds as well, uh, a type of fund where there's a higher level of trust imputed to how the fund manager manages the fund, that entire area I think is going to be subject to substantial litigation and substantial liability. Yeah, I think that the 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 interesting thing here is that piercing through this, as I see it, uh, involves uh, the allegation and proof that the trust was never used. That produces two results, liability or potential liability on the part of the investors and further liability to them, which is why they will probably fight like med against it, they would lose the benefits of the remix statute from the Internal Revenue Code, which is a real estate mortgage investment conduit. If the conduit was never used, then their investments are just out-and-out investments. And their income, which, by the way, doesn't come directly from payments by so-called borrowers. It comes from a master servicer who is is supposedly a master servicer for the trust, but in actuality is in control of these phantom pools. That money, including the portion of it which might be return of principal, 
of the investment from the investor, all of that might be ordinary income to the fund, which is exactly the point of why they establish a remic trust so there would be no such tax treatment. But they have essentially defrauded the taxpayers as well as everyone else. And by they, I mean the Wall Street banks. Now, I agree with you that the um, these fund managers had a responsibility to know what was going on. And I think that you know, obviously, the whether it's a teacher's fund or whatever, the teachers would have a right to sue the fund manager for breach of fiduciary duty or negligence or something like that. But I think if it rises to gross negligence, or if you can show that they must have known that they could not have been ignorant of what was really going on here, given their higher level of sophistication and so forth, but that they were receiving benefits, the managers were receiving benefits, then the uh, uh, the fund, which is the investor, would be liable through principal agent theory for the acts of the fund manager in setting uh, uh, these things in motion where eventually their money would appear on a closing table where neither the borrower nor the closing agent nor the originator knew where the money came from and in the case of the originator didn't care and for that matter the closing agent as well all they wanted was their fee for what, in essence, if you really look at it with perspective, seeing the investors on one side and the homeowners on the other, everybody in between is merely in a shark-feeding frenzy of eating up the money that was put up by the investors and then covering over the uh, crime or the violation, however you want to characterize it, with the uh, a portion of the monies put up by investors being used to originate loans that, in most cases, had no hope of ever being of ever performing, and they they wanted to do it that way because if the loan didn't perform, they could foreclose. And if they foreclosed, then in a judicial state, there would be a final judgment of foreclosure and then a deed upon sale. And in a non-judicial state, there would be a deed issued upon sale. And that would be the first legal, valid, authentic document in the whole chain. But the presumption would be once that occurred, that everything that preceded it was also legal, valid, and, and authentic. So you have all these parties that have a vested interest and incentive to foreclose on loans even before they make them. Yeah, absolutely, because and, it's built into the whole pie from the beginning. 
that they're going to be doing this securitization. Right. But what what I've been saying for, I guess, close to 10 years is that on inspection, you find that the securitization never happened because for securitization to have happened, the trust had to have purchased these loans. Now, I see again and again. Right. It's a, it's a, it's a ruse, basically. But it's a, it's a legal vehicle and a legal stratagem and the use of legal terminology to frame an activity that garners certain protection. And for the very reason that it's a phantom, you know, in, it's, a, it's a phantom in fact, it, it doesn't deserve mimic protection. It doesn't deserve other legal protection. Right. And, and I, I think, you know, one of the things that I've explained to uh, uh, government regulators uh, who were hopelessly lost like a deer in the headlights when this thing first happened back in 2007 and 8 is that Wall Street understands one basic principle perhaps better than any other industry. The more complicated, the more convoluted the product, the more the buyer has to rely on the seller for information to evaluate the product. So what they did was they created a situation initially, that was designed to make it impenetrable for even the most sophisticated people to understand the product, and then they got them to rely on insurance from AIG, on credit default swaps, or whatever. The fact remains that these purchases were made with at least access to the knowledge it took to determine whether or not the certificates had any value because they would have known that the money was not headed for the trust. And I have personally spoken with fund managers who did not buy these certificates for the very reason that I just stated. So I right. know they understood, they understood that it was uh, that it, this was this was a contrived complexity. I've always loved that term as a description for what goes on with this. So yes, like there were term. players that understood they should pass on this because it's a contrived complexity. I like that term. I think I will steal it, but I might give you credit for it. Well, please, so, please do both. <laughs> All right. Well, Charles Marshall, John Dunn, thank you very much for joining us tonight. And I look forward to our next show, which will be December 15th. And... Uh, for those of you who are uh, looking to contact us, uh, the main number is 202-838-6345. Contact Charles Marshall at 619-807-2628.
And I'll see you before the holidays and then after the holidays. Thank you. Absolutely, Neil. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.